Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. I'm Jane Hong. And I'm Tim Sang. And we're your hosts. This season, we're focusing on the history of Asian American Christianity and the ways it can help us understand our present moment. Thanks for joining us. Hi, welcome to Centering, the podcast of Fuller's Asian American Center. I'm Tim Sang, Pacific Area Director of InterVarsity's Graduate and Faculty Ministries. I'm also a historian of American religion with a focus on Asian American Christianity. And I'm Jane Hong, an Associate Professor of History specializing in 20th century U.S. immigration and foreign relations. And I'm currently writing a history of Asian American evangelicalism since the 1970s. Now, Jane, have you visited Hawaii before? Yes, both for fun and for work. Like a lot of folks, I honeymooned there with my husband. Two of my closest friends from college are actually from Honolulu. Uh, one is now a Hawaii state representative. So I've visited a number of times and I even follow local politics now and then, depending on what he's up to. Um, as a, a scholar, I'm a historian of immigration. I've actually done um, extensive research at the Hawaii State Archives and at um, UH Manoa. Because part of my first book looks at how Hawaii congressmen and women were involved in lobbying for immigration reform uh, right after statehood in 1959, 1960s. And I've also really been interested in the Korean community um, in Hawaii. Most people probably don't know, but Hawaii had the largest Korean community in the U.S. until at least the 1970s. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so wonderful to have an opportunity to do research in Hawaii. My ministry also includes the Hawaiian Islands. You know, folks on the U.S. mainland think of Hawaii primarily as a beautiful tourist destination, but it is so much more than that. Hawaii is replete with stories of Christian faith and witness, betrayal and colonization, U.S. statehood and the fight for self-determination. Among Asian American historians, Gary Okihiro, who was born and raised in Hawaii, argues that if we want to construct a new history of America, one that decenters the West, we need to begin with Hawaii. Hawaii is also crucial to our understanding of Asian Americans and the Pacific Islander history. So I hope that today we'll have a chance to have our eyes opened to hearing the story of Christianity in Hawaii. So to help us learn more about this topic, we'd like to welcome Mr. Leon Su. Leon Su is a musician, film, and video producer. He's also a lecturer and consultant on Hawaiian culture and history. He has served in leadership for the World Christian Gathering on Indigenous Peoples, the All Peoples Prayer Assembly, Aloha Keakua Ministries, and Indigenous Stewards International. For over 30 years, he's been the Director of Christian Voice of Hawaii, which keeps over 600 ministers in Hawaii informed on civic matters. Very importantly, uh, Leon is also a subject of the Hawaiian Kingdom and serves as its Minister of Foreign Affairs, working to peacefully resolve the illegal occupation of the Hawaiian Islands by the United States. He was nominated for the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize. It's an amazing thing. And in June 2017, he received the gold medal UN Peacemaker Sergio de Mello Award from the International Parliament. Um, as a follower of Christ, uh, Leon is committed to glorifying God by serving and inspiring people through the use of the arts, culture, media, and international diplomacy to spread God's aloha. Welcome, Leon. Aloha. Leon. Could you tell us what Hawaii was like before the arrival of Captain James Cook in 
1778, or around the time when, or before the time that the American Congregational Missionaries landed there? Yes, okay, well, uh, Captain James Cook landed in Hawaii in 1778, as you said. So at that time, there was a religious system in place called the Kapu system. But it actually, that Kapu system was actually a, uh, uh, not the original religion of Hawaii. The original religion of Hawaii goes much further back. And it actually goes back to the belief of one true God, and which is was actually uh, all over the world. You know, there was a one true God, the worship of one true God. And, and then eventually it became diluted or, or changed to uh, being the worship of many gods. And that has to do, of course, with just the, the fall away of man from God after the Tower of Babel. Hawaii was very much, uh, Hawaiian religion was a Polynesian religion of a one true, belief in a one true, benevolent, almighty God. But then there was an, an overthrow of that kapu, of that system by uh, invaders from uh, Tahiti. And so that religious system called the kapu system was in place for about 500 years prior to Captain Cook's arrival. So when Captain Cook arrived, this couple system was a very detailed system, but it actually had the worship of many gods. And it also uh, put a lot of emphasis on the godhood or the descendancy from gods of certain class of people, the elites, the chiefs. So there were very strict rules on everything. Most of the rules were actually uh, rules for how to conduct your, li your life and how to get along with, with uh, nature and all that. So they were actually very beneficial, taken from wise practices with how to use our resources. But the other rules that were in place were to establish or to maintain the power of the elite class, the ali'i uh, and, the, and the priestly class. So that got very, very, um, uh, how to say, we got very strict, and there were uh, the death penalty, sacrifice, and things like that. That was just for about every infraction. It was a very, very harsh uh, religious system uh, when Captain Cook arrived. That's what what happened. Now, after Captain Cook arrived, of course, there was there started to become a challenge to the religious system, just basically because obviously the white people who came were not didn't seem to be bound by the couple system. They were breaking all kinds of uh, rules and taboos and without punishment from the gods or, or being held accountable by the civil government. So that began to shake the, the trust in that. In 1819, King Kamehameha the Great passed away. He was the one who unified all of the, the nation and, and had maintained the Kapu system as best as he could. But after he passed away, there was a strong move uh, among uh, royalty, including actually his queens, several of his queens were in, in rebellion against the couple system because of the heavy-handed laws that confined women and what they could or couldn't do. And so two of his queens conspired with the high chief of the kahunas, the highest kahuna of all, and with the heir to the throne, Kamehameha II. And together on October 4th, I believe, 1819, they basically outlawed the Kapu system or, or abandoned the Kapu system. So they basically announced that they were no longer going to be honoring the system. And by doing so, they actually put Hawaii in a religious vacuum. People didn't know what to do. Well, six months later, 
a ship arrives from Boston carrying missionaries. And um, the congregational missionaries came in and they started to preach about God. And so that is how Christianity got started. Now, even prior to Kamehameha's death, of course, there were traders and others that came through Hawaii and had, you know, Kamehameha became familiar with there was another religion, a Christian religion uh, of these foreigners, but he did not embrace that religion. But his son eventually did, as well as all of the chiefs. And that's how the religious, uh, how Christianity got uh, planted here in Hawaii. Now, I know the missionaries, right, had um, an interesting role in Hawaii starting in the early 19th century. And, you know, there's been um, much writing about how missionaries in many ways destroyed or harmed the indigenous cultures of, of Hawaii. So I wondered if you could speak to that, the missionaries and kind of how they negotiated Hawaiian culture. Yes. You know, an interesting thing about missionaries is that they actually are, they come from a culture themselves. When they bring the gospel to a, and this has come up a lot in the indigenous ministries, wherever missionaries went from the West, whether they're from England or France or from America, they brought their own culture with them and basically tended to disparage the culture that was already there or refused to see that maybe God had put some good things into that culture. So they tended to outlaw the whole culture altogether. That practice, by the way, still goes on today with missionary work. And it wasn't until the 1990s that, uh, and that's why I was in Pasadena, by the way, at that time. And when I went to, um, um, I was in Pasadena uh, working with the uh, U.S. Center for World Missions. They were very concerned about how missionaries were implanting a whole new culture and displacing the culture that was already there. So we were working with them, and uh, we started up a ministry in Hawaii called Aloha Keakua, which eventually helped to tell the story about what happened in Hawaii and to, to say that, that God had not abandoned the people altogether, that he had placed within their cultures signs and evidence of his presence, and that it was those clues that he had left that the missionaries needed to look for in order to be successful in the missions. There's a a missionary named Don Richardson who was very instrumental in that. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Don Richardson, he wrote a book uh, years ago called Peace Child, and then one after that called Eternity in Their Hearts, which I recommend to everybody because he actually came across this, this idea or he experienced this and then formulated this this criticism of Christian ministries or Christian missions. And that is we tend to overrun the cultural values that are there already within these indigenous cultures. And by doing so, they set themselves up as really an adversarial force coming in to displace the local culture. And it was only in those places where that practice was not used, where there were huge successful revivals and, and conversions. And so he cited a number of different places where that happened, and Hawaii was one of those places. So what happened after the missionaries came, even though they brought their own cultural values and practices with them, they did allow, to some degree, uh, Hawaiians to really maintain, or actually Hawaiians recognized part of what the missionaries were teaching about peace and about Jesus's way 
was actually consistent with, with their own culture. And therefore, they began to embrace Christianity, not because it was a strange thing, but because it was familiar to them, to their knowledge about the one true God prior to the, to the imposition of the uh, false gods. So they, they actually began to, uh, they came to Jesus because they recognized that God had left an imprint in the Hawaiian culture that pointed to him. Yeah, and that so is a that, fascinating story, Leon. Yes. And apparently the, the Hawaiian monarchy also adopted Christianity. Could you say a little bit more about this adaptation and how Christianity impacted Hawaiian society after, uh, in the 19th century, after the missionaries? Surely, yes. Actually, it was unusual because it was the monarchs who embraced Christianity first. And they had, of course, had been part of the, the kapu system prior and then realized that they needed a new religion. And this one was very consistent to how they, with their view of how the world functions and uh, their cosmology. So therefore, they started to embrace Christianity. And so all of the top ali'is, the chiefs, embraced Christianity, including the king, and put out edicts that everybody should consider this. So the missionaries had actually very had the endorsement to go everywhere and, and to preach the gospel. And most of them were very successful. Some of them who were much more tied to their New England culture had had a hard time, but others who were willing to basically adapt to the Hawaiian mentality of the Hawaiian uh, values were very successful. At one point in, in, by the 1830s, the largest church in the world was in a little town called Hilo. So Hilo was a, uh, was a village of about a thousand people, which is considered a big uh, town in, in, in those days. But it had a church with a membership of 10,000. People came from miles around to attend this church. And when they came, they would come for weeks at a time sometimes and just to, to be at the church. This incredible revival or awakening happened in Hawaii. And by the 1850s, 30 years later, after the missionaries had arrived, Hawaii was about 96% Christian. And at that point, the most Christian nation in the earth, on the earth. So this was a, quite an achievement. They also, by that time, became the most literate nation on earth because the Ali'is put a very high value on the ability to read so that they could read the gospel. And so Hawaiians became very, very proficient in reading and writing and started to record, of course, a lot of their own history, pre, pre-written history, but they started to record them now, now that the writing was available. So the impact that they had on, on society was, again, this whole change from a pagan society into, into a Christian society. And it definitely changed everything. Yes, a lot of the practices, uh, there were more uh, superficial practices were banned, but the Hawaiian language was never banned. And the references in the Hawaiian language to the lands, it's all that was never banned. And another time I can talk to you about the importance of a language to an indigenous culture and actually to the world, but that's too long a discussion. But when the language was not banned, it actually maintained the cultural foundations, the foundations of the culture. If, if you get rid of the language, then the, the culture actually totally falls apart. No, I think that what you're doing, Leon, is really important for our discussion, because I think what you're doing is you're, you're reminding us that 
Hawaii had a developed society and culture mm-hmm. before uh, white missionaries, traders, businessmen, um, sugar planters, yes. before they arrived. And I think that's something that a lot of Americans in particular don't really right. think a lot about, right? That, that right. pre, they think of it as prehistory, but in reality, that is actually the history um, of Hawaii. Uh-huh. And I think that's really important for us to remember. Now, as you've noted, um, and you know, in the work that you do, this is really important, right? The history is that a group of white Americans, right, they overthrow the kingdom of Hawaii and Hawaii is annexed by the United States in 1898, kind of right around the time, the Spanish-American War and the annexation of the Philippines, right? So it's part of a broader story. And even when I teach, um, when I teach this, I teach it as part of this broader story of, of US empire. I'm just curious about the role that Christians played in this story. And I think you alluded to some of it earlier, perhaps, but could you say more about how did Christians respond to the annexation in 1898, white missionaries and also in kind of Hawaiian Christians at that time? Did they support annexation? Did they oppose it? Kind of how, how did they kind of fall down on this issue? Okay. I, I'd like to back up like 60 years before uh, the overthrow. And um, so Hawaii is a, is a Christian nation. It's been declared a Christian nation by the king, King Kamehameha III. And he sends uh, emissaries to England and to, to France to uh, garner their recognition as Hawaii as a sovereign nation. Now, this goes back, of course, to the doctrine of discovery and all that. I'm sure you're familiar with that particular part, meaning what he was asserting was that Hawaii is now a Christian nation. Therefore, it was immune from being conquered by any other Christian nation, because that's basically what one of the guarantees of the doctrine of discovery was, that a country cannot take a country that's Christian. And so Hawaii became recognized uh, as formally recognized by Great Britain and France and the United States in 1843 as a Christian nation. In 1840, Hawaii, the, like I said, Hawaii had actually declared itself a Christian nation and had actually adopted a, uh, a declaration of rights that said all laws in the Hawaiian kingdom shall conform to the laws of Jehovah God. So basically the king said, we are going to be a Christian nation and because all of our laws are going to be in keeping with the laws of Jehovah God. It was founded as a Christian nation. Therefore, it became recognized as a Christian nation and was able to join that exclusive club of European nations that call themselves uh, the family of nations. Um, So that's how it functioned as a sovereign independent nation all the way through the 19th century. And then toward the end of the 19th century, there were quite a few dynamics that happened. And one was that the trading class of people, and some of them now descended from missionaries, uh, began to own large estates and uh, plantations. And they developed uh, the sugar industry into, into the largest economic machine or in Hawaii. Quite Actually, the sugar industry was one of the largest in the world from Hawaii. And so it very much wanted to secure the market of sugar in the United States. And so these descendants of missionaries and other Europeans who had come to live here uh, conspired to overthrow the kingdom of Hawaii or the Hawaiian kingdom. Because of course, the rulers, the monarchs of the Hawaiian kingdom and all the people of the Hawaiian kingdom did not see any sense of becoming annexed to to another country and, and so opposed that. 
But the sugar planters, their goal was to get better and stable sugar prices. So they took over the government in 1893. The interesting thing was that they convinced the Department of War of the United States to land troops in Hawaii to help them overthrow the kingdom. And the teaser for the, them to do so was that they would offer the United States Pearl Harbor as a naval base because it was the best base in the Pacific. And it was in the middle of the Pacific, which made, meant that the United States aspirations, its manifest destiny, could now be fulfilled because they would have this military outpost in the middle of the Pacific. So the trade-off was that the sugar planters would get better prices and stable prices for their sugar, and the United States would get Pearl Harbor. And that was the deal made to overthrow the Hawaiian Kingdom. Now, this was a total betrayal of the friendship that we had, the Hawaiian Kingdom had with the United States. It was a rogue operation. And at that time, most of, like I said, 90, over 90% of the Hawaiians were Christians. And so they, actually most of them, signed a petition opposing annexation and, and were very much against, of course, the overthrow and annexation. So the people of Hawaii almost unanimously opposed annexation. The only ones that were for it were the people, the businessmen and those involved in commerce, but they had the United States troops behind them. So there was very little that could be done to oppose them without entering into an, an all-out war with the United States. That's a really tragic story. Yeah, so that was- I'm sorry. <laughs> so unfortunately, some of the white pastors of the major churches in Hawaii sided with the insurrectionists and they wrote awful letters about Hawaii being a savage place, the queen being a savage, and therefore they, what they did was they triggered the yellow press in, in Hawaii, in, in the United States, to portray Hawaiians as savages. And with the queen with her with a bone through her nose, and you know, these types of very degrading and, and misleading and awful depictions of Hawaiian people. When at that time, we were one of the most sophisticated progressive nations in the world. <laughs> we had diplomatic representation in 136 countries, or 136 cities around the world. So, that's, yeah. that's absolutely a very, very, very um, tragic and horrible story because you have Christians on both sides of that mm -hmm. issue. And I think it's something that should constantly be remembered the Christian complicity with colonialism is something that I think today we're still wrestling with and trying to work through. So I appreciate you bringing that up and I hope that, that uh, our listeners will keep that in mind. If I could move on. <laughs> the 20th century. Yes. This is the part of Hawaiian history that I'm, I'm least familiar with. So I thought I'd ask between annexation and statehood, what was going on in Hawaii, particularly among the Christians, given the fact that both sides were so, were so on different positions on, on this question, what was happening among Christians in Hawaii during the early 20th century or the first half of the 20th century? Uh, after the overthrow, of course, 
most of the Hawaiians were opposed to the annexation and were opposed to uh, the territory of Hawaii. But uh, the United States and the, those that had conspired uh, the territory of Hawaii government then really affected the educational system in that they would train over a period of time, basically indoctrinate new generations to of Hawaiians to become Americans. So what they did was a, a very concerted effort to eradicate the Hawaiian awareness of their own culture and actually actually tried to eradicate the language as well uh, and all, all Hawaiian practices and to Americanize uh, everyone, particularly our children. So after several generations of this, then Hawaiians forgot completely about what happened with the overthrow and thought, and we were told in our history books that Hawaiians had embraced annexation, had actually begged the United States to annex the Hawaiian Islands. So the 20th century, the churches, as well as the general population, all bought this false narrative about what happened here. So the churches were American churches. They weren't Hawaiian churches anymore, as far as being under the Hawaiian kingdom. And, and everything's, everything went along quite well through World War II even, and even World War II even cemented that affiliation of Hawaiians to the United States. Everybody became very patriotic Hawaiians and had fought through the Great War. And of course, you know, Pearl Harbor had been a target as well. So the church was pretty much an American church, made no mention about what happened at the turn of the century, the 20th century. It wasn't until the 70s when uh, Hawaiians began to question about why they, they no, no longer had control of their own lands. Many of them were living in poverty and could not afford their own uh, lands when they, they knew that their forefathers, that this particular village they were in, this is what, what their forefathers owned and lived in. So the question began to arise, so how did we get separated from our lands? And if we had our lands back, we could actually help to support ourselves once again. Uh, after statehood, which was, by, by the way, a fraud, uh, which is right now being taken out by the United Nations. But uh, after statehood, then, you know, the development really started to go bananas here in Hawaii. And hotels started to rise in Waikiki and all that. And much, much more land was being condemned and taken away from uh, the local people, the Hawaiians. Uh, so Hawaiians began to start to try to protect their lands from developers, you know, to protect a pristine or a farming valley from being turned into a golf course, you know, and things like that. Uh, so uh, during those demonstrations and those resist acts of resistance, then the awareness about what happened in at the turn of the 19th century and since began to, to arise. So by, the 19, by 1978, the United States knew that they were in trouble because people were beginning to learn the truth. No, this is a really important point. Um, and I want to come. Yes, I think we definitely want to come back um, to the movements of the 1970s and after because I mean, there's so there's so much that um, we can talk about that's obviously still playing out in the present. But the statehood issue, right? This is a really important yes. moment for Hawaii right. and Hawaiian history. So I wanted to just focus on that for at least a little bit. So I mean, Hawaii becomes a state in 1959. 
Um, and this is something I've studied. Um, you know, it, it took many years for Congress to approve statehood. And if you look at the debates in Washington, D.C. in Congress, right, it's really Southern lawmakers who at the time were pretty much all segregationists. Um, they're the ones that really opposed statehood. And they would continually, they would kill um, statehood bills in the Senate. Um, and the reason they did this is they didn't like Hawaii's majority minority population. And they were pretty terrified at the thought of Hawaii sending non-white folks to Congress, right? Which is what does happen. Right. They were especially right. concerned that these new Congress people from Hawaii would strengthen the civil rights wing in the Senate. Mm -hmm. which, you know, until the 1960s, the Senate, it's Southerners in the Senate who really were able to squelch all civil rights legislation um, for decades. And I mean, this is a whole, this is a whole history. So if folks are interested in learning more, about the relationship between Hawaii statehood and black civil rights. Um, I talk about it in my first book um, and historian Ellen Wu also does a really um, good discussion of it in her book, uh, The Color of Success, Asian Americans and the Origins of the Model Minority. Um, so there's a lot more that could be said about that, but I wanted to ask you, Leon, what was the conversation about Hawaiian statehood among people in Hawaii? So leading up to 1959, you, I mean, you alluded earlier to like, there was a lot of resistance and protest um, but just kind of, can you set the stage generally? No. Like, were who were the different groups okay. and constituencies um, on this issue? The, the resistance and protests were 60 years before, before statehood. And so at the time of statehood, there was no resistance or protest because of the success of the indoctrination. So uh, now what you might want to ask yourself, how come the Asians were in charge of Hawaii? What happened to the Hawaiians? So this was the damage done. Not only did the white people take over Hawaii, but then later the Asians uh, supplanted. Is this Hawaii. the Democratic Revolution? Uh, the Democratic Revolution? Yes, I, I remember. right. The Democratic Re Re uh, Revolution. But all along, Hawaiians have been marginalized and pushed to the back. So whatever new group came in and started to vie for uh, leadership, that's where it went. So by the time of statehood, it was very highly because of the 56 um, revolutions, so to speak, the democratic revolution, it was very highly charged with patriotism toward the United States and becoming a state. So Hawaiians really had no voice in that. Now, on top of that, when the statehood vote was taken, now, uh, so I, I do a lot of work in decolonization also, and that's why, I, by the way, I was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, was because of my uh, work in decolonization. Hawaii had been identified in 1946 when the United Nations was formed, identified as a territory of the United States, which technically was not. It was still a sovereign country, but being occupied by the United States. But everyone went along with that. Na uh, narrative. And so they said, okay, Hawaii is a territory of the United States. It has the right to decolonize. And so, well, let's give them that right. So in 1959, the United States decided instead of decolonizing Hawaii, instead of risking Hawaii from choosing independence in the decolonization process, they would prevent Hawaiians from learning about the possibility of in independence. They never mentioned it. And they only talked about statehood. And they drummed it up as to how good statehood would be to become a full-fledged member of the United States with voting rights and with all kinds of economic benefits and things like that. So the vote for statehood was simply that, do you want to become a state of the United States? 
There was no mention leading up to it or ever since the idea about Hawaii becoming self-determining in uh, with independence or free association and everything, which every other territory that was under the UN as a non-self-governing territory, every other one during the time of decolonization, they had that, that privilege of having, choosing whether they wanted to become incorporated into the administrative state or to become separate. Hawaii was never given that opportunity. Well, by the way, Alaska was, was not given that opportunity either. So instead, they held a plebiscite or a referendum. Now, if you have a country or a territory in which you want to determine whether or not they could become independent, the only ones who can vote for that are the actually actual people of that nation. But in the, the plebiscite that was held in 1959 in Hawaii, only U.S. citizens could vote. Hawaiian nationals, Hawaiians, were not allowed to vote. Those that still identified themselves with the Hawaiian kingdom were not allowed to vote. So the only ones who chose statehood were U.S. citizens in Hawaii. And, and it was interesting how you, you sort of drew um, from this, that this planted the seeds for the independence movement. Yes. Uh, or the decolonization movement. So if I could ask you to then, you, you and you started talking about earlier, but just go back and just share with us again, um, what created, generated this movement and, and what were the roles of, of, of Christians yeah. in, in it? Well, it was the awareness or the dawning after a while that our nation had been stolen and we had been marginalized and pushed to the side and trampled under. And everybody else was living the good American dream you know, but we had lost our country in the, in the process. And the churches were also complicit in it, you know, because they went along with it. And, and understandably, because the, no, everybody forgot the facts. So it wasn't until the 1970s and 80s when we really began to learn what happened. The United States started to make plans to somehow contain the problem. And then in the 1990s, the United States actually issued a full apology for the taking of the Hawaiian Kingdom, uh, signed by President Clinton, passed by Congress. And basically, they apologized for the wrong that they had done by taking the Hawaiian Kingdom. They didn't lay it out that clearly, but that's what the whole document alluded to. And so in 1993, that was issued. That was on the 100th anniversary of the overthrow of the Hawaiian Kingdom. It became quite a significant date because, and it gave Hawaiians hope. We said, now we have a chance to restore our, our nation, or restore the Hawaiian Kingdom as the sovereign of, of these islands. Only the United States didn't actually mean it to, to go that far. Right. They called for reconciliation and not a single thing has been done toward this reconciliation. And so they apologize without any intention of making good with the apology, of not any intention of repenting uh, or you know, working things out. So, so that's where we are with statehood uh, and, and then with, the, with uh, the overthrow. Now, the, the church has been very slow on the uptake of, about the, the injustice done to the Hawaiian people um, because of this, the United States occupation of our lands. However, they're beginning to awaken uh, now. In 1993, 
actually before the United States apologized, the United Church of Christ apologized for its role in the overthrow of the Hawaiian Kingdom, mainly the, the fact that there, some of their leaders, their pastors, supported the annexationists. So they apologized for that and actually started to try to provide some remedies for it. But none of, well, the United Methodist Church was supposed to pass something in 2020, but their general uh, assembly was postponed because of COVID. So I'm not sure if they passed an apology also. But the problem with those apologies, like the United States apology or the UCC's apology, is that it goes nowhere near approaching any point of repentance or acts of repentance. I think it's such an important history and the fact that these movements are ongoing, I think are also really important. The other piece that I'm really glad you highlighted, Leon, and I think, especially for folks, you know, who might have um, grown up on, on the continental US, right, the, the mainland, to think about the role that Asian Americans have played in this history of what is essentially settler colonialism, right? I think oftentimes folks will use that term to talk about yeah. um, European settlers who are coming in um, to displace indigenous peoples on the East Coast of the United States, but to think about Asian Americans as occupying, being complicit at least, um, or being part of that story in Hawaii, I think that's, that's really important. So we're coming down to our, our last um, kind of couple minutes. And I just want to- could I, could, I make, could I make a small comment on that? Of course, of course. And, and maybe you're, as your part, of your part of your final thoughts, because um, yeah. I wanted to ask about your final kind of final parting thoughts for right, us. Right, right. Okay, so uh, remember that colonialism is not driven by racial prejudices. It's driven by money, you know. So that's what they're after. It, it, if, if there's a place where there's no resources to be had by a, a power, they don't go there. They don't displace the people. But if there's resources, then they go there and they treat the people badly because they're not white. But, but the real driving force is greed. And, and that is what's going on. And that's what happened in Hawaii. And that's what happens all over the place. So we're, we're sometimes looking at one of these symptoms rather than at the cause when we talk about racism. Yes, racism is, is a part, but it's like almost a, a, an argument for why they can go ahead and take the place. It, it's an excuse that it is made. Oh, that they're brown or they're yellow or whatever. So it's, it, racism becomes an excuse, a convenient excuse to, uh, to go ahead and conduct their greedy land grabbing or resource grabbing. I think that's a really important and interesting debate. I think I hear this with historians of slavery who who ask, you know, what came first, right, slavery or racism? But the reality is right there, they kind of go hand in hand, right? Um, how race is constructed is oftentimes, it often has a material basis, right? There's financial considerations driving um, a lot of these um, histories. It's, it's not often, it, it's not often, it's always. Yeah, so I think depending on the case, um, I, I've heard historians argue back and forth about this. There's lots of different conversations, but okay. I completely agree that um, we have to mm -hmm. think about, you know, how race is constructed in different places um, in relation to resources and power, right? And I think you're exactly mm -hmm. right on that count. And again, for, you know, Asian American folks thinking about their role in this in this history, maybe it's, this is a good time for us to really reflect um, on on Asian Americans' mm -hmm. place in this in these narratives and Christians too. But thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, and Christ and Christians, Asian American Christians, Christians. maybe in particular. <laughs> 
Well, Leon, <laughs> mahalo so much for, for, for giving us your time. It was a real privilege to hear your story and to hear the story of Hawaiians. And, and for some of us, we may not have heard this before. So thank you for giving us your time and, and hopefully awakening us to um, engaging this story so that we could think of ways in which we can be more supportive as brothers and sisters in Christ. We wish you many blessings on your future endeavors uh, and God bless. Thank you very much. Well, I really appreciate your giving me this opportunity and bless you for, for asking me and bless all of the listeners out there. Mahalo. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. You can listen to Centering episodes at soundcloud.com backslash centering podcast or your favorite podcast apps. Go in peace. And remember that God loves and embraces all of who you are.